0: Something new this week from billionaire tech entrepreneur Elon Musk, who unveiled a humanoid looking robot tentatively called Optimus that he says will possibly be available for sale to the public for under twenty thousand dollars by twenty twenty seven. But it's not ready for prime time quite yet and will likely first be deployed, walking on two legs and grasping objects with its little fingers in his Tesla auto factories, perhaps carrying things to other robots. Even so, the mental picture of a human-like robot tooling around a factory floor, let alone one that we might be able to use in our own home someday, is a little unsettling and in some ways, you know, downright creepy. At least it is to me. But, hey, I'm not an expert, and maybe that's just my imagination. So I checked in with somebody who actually is a robotics expert, designer, author, and educator, Carla Diana. You may remember her from our conversation last year about her new book, My Robot Gets Me. Here's what she said.
1: It raises a lot of issues. It touches on a lot of what I talk about in the My Robot Gets Me book as well as on the podcast around why do we need a humanoid um, so it brings up a lot of questions in my mind I mean the, some of the first things that you mentioned about it, it being an a, under $20,000 robot that's very very ambitious frankly what I know about robots today but of course we know that technology um, accelerates so that's that's something that I could you know see a company striving towards my bigger question is the why around the architecture, and particularly um, why it needs to be look like a human. And it, it is, for, to me as a roboticist, with all of the different robotics projects I've worked on, um, you know, some which have had really articulated faces and, and hands and arms, and some which have not. Um, as a product designer, we really look at, what the robot does, like how it actually serves our lives in our homes and workplaces. And the presentation of the robot doesn't really seem to address any of that in any really tangible way. And it feels very, very inefficient to me to design something that is what we would, what we in the field call a bi- bipedal robot, or a robot on two legs. Um, you know, the amount of engineering that goes into having a machine that walks, that can put one foot in front of another and maintain balance, is so extreme and expensive. From a processing and component point of view, that the justification is something I can't um, reckon with. Like, there just doesn't seem any reason to have a bipedal robot for any of the circumstances that were described, except to ignite our imaginations. Um, to you know, to to bring a counterpoint, the. Uh, let's say we would talk about this robot serving us in the home, right? Serving Um, teeth. Having this robot on a set of wheels would make it so much more efficient, reliable, stable, and um, less expensive from an engineering point of view, cost point of view, than this walking thing. And um, yeah, it just seems really uh, extreme, like, like extreme and wasteful engineering. Likewise, the um, what the company has been boasting about the robots' articulated hands that have five fingers. You know, you'll notice a lot of industrial robots, they have grippers. I mean, they have what we would call hands, but they don't have five articulated fingers and a palm, and they they don't need that.
0: Well, I suppose that if you were designing a robot just for functionality, it, it makes sense that it would have wheels and it wouldn't necessarily have hands that look like ours. But if your long-term goal is to essentially create... Artificial companions for people. Maybe in the future, uh, something that could live in a home with a, an mm-hmm. elderly person, uh, kind of be your basic servant or companion or major domo, whatever you want to call it. Mm-hmm. That, that then you'd want it to look like a human being, right? Or would that be too freaky? Would that scare people?
1: It would. I, it would still be too freaky. There's so there's a. Um, there is a theory in robotics that is called um, the uncanny valley, and I'm going to mess up the name of the person, but I can find you the, the reference afterwards. Um, and it is um, it proposes that as a, as a robot gets more and more human-like, we start to... Like it, or become you know have affection towards it up until a point, and then that point where it becomes uncanny, that affection actually do- takes a nosedive, and we get scared. And um, you know this this quest for replicating a human um, just to me as a designer seems very misguided. So I mean I'll share a little. And again, I've worked on humanoid um, or or at least partially humanoid. One of the first robots I worked on with Dr. Tamaz was an upper-torso humanoid. And, um, you know, right now we've been working very, very intensely in real-world applications with the main robot that Diligent Robotics now manufactures sells, which is called MOXIE, which is a robot for hospital settings. And it is a nurse's assistant. And we've... Um, spent a lot of time designing this robot to feel like another team member so that nurses don't feel like they have to learn a machine, they don't have to learn code, they don't have to, um, you know, they're not operating a piece of equipment. They are working with a robotic team member. And so in that, we, we pulled a lot from the, there's an entire field called social robotics, so it does. It has a head. It has some suggestion of eyes. It has these lights that let it blink and give you an expression. Um, but then it is on wheels, and it um, has as abstracted a form as possible, so that you know that it's a robot. You know that it's a piece of equipment, but you also see it as an entity. And if we were to, um, you know, extrapolate. A bit from and I totally understand what you're saying if we were to have this in the home you know why would you want something that's a cart on wheels if it might be you know you might not engage people's imagination around the idea of companion? but I don't think that that needs to be a literal representation for example we have pets Um, my son keeps aquariums and he wakes up every morning. He knows every one of those fish's names, and talks with them. And they don't. And, and we like we we mourn them when we lose one, and um, we we assign them personalities. We project onto them personalities, but you know they don't. They're not little walking little things. I mean, we have as a designer, we've had a history of objects onto which we project personality. That do not have legs and limbs and eyeballs and um, you know just some subtle suggestion of that is really often enough. Um, and I'll give you so I'll give you an example. I'm a um, a sailing aficionado, and uh, we have in our sailboat races we've been using these robots. They're called the Mark Set bots, and they um, you know, we send them out to do – to be the, the the points in the race that we have to race around. And, um, you know, we – but we see them as characters. Like, when, when our boats get near them, we go, don't come near me, and we talk to them. You know, we definitely start to see life in them and treat them like these autonomous, like they have some, some – what we would call agency. Um But they don't really, they don't need to look like us. They don't need to look like people swimming in the water for us to start to have our imaginations go in that direction. So, uh, as a designer, I also think the whatever it is has to do what it does well. A dog might be really good at being a watchdog and bark and bite and, you know, and be on four legs yet we can still find it a great companion even though it's not a humanoid humanish type of
0: entity okay let me ask you this i want to go back to that uncanny valley mm-hmm. is our mistrust from a psychological point of view is that a learned psychological response that we've developed let's say over the past 80 years of watching movies with creepy robots in them and now we don't trust them or is that an innate psychological human response to something that looks close to being human but it's not quite human and then we get right. into kind of like a, a tribal memory of this isn't right need to kill is that, right, right? Is right. that what it is? I think, So I
1: think that it may be impossible to separate those things. And I think part of the reason we're even in this situation with somebody creating this humanoid, it has to do with science fiction. Because as much as we have it, you know, and it's different in different cultures. In our culture, yeah, we have Terminator and we have some frightening robots. It's just our whole idea of robot comes from theater. And there was originally a Czech play called R.U.R. that gave us one of the first, Visions and the film Metropolis. and So we already have this idea in our heads. And I think that that science fiction idea has both sides. So yes, we fear it, but we also kind of really believe in this myth of the companion. So I think that part of it could potentially have success. The Uncanny Valley is much more concerning to me. And I'll tell you an anecdote from my own experience in one of the projects I worked on, which would be Simon. So Simon, again, was this robot that was what, what we call upper torso humanoid. So it was, you'd need it at a table. So it didn't, it didn't walk, it, but it had articulated arms and pads, and we spent a lot of time designing a very expressive head. And this head had eyeballs, and it could blink. It, the irises could move and look things, which is an important part of socializing, being able to know where someone's looking and what they're looking at, and it could nod its head. And we had originally designed this pretty sophisticated system of having an abstracted mouth and abstracted eyebrows that would be controlled from magnets within this plastic shell, if you can imagine that. So if you can imagine this sort of rubber band mouth and And eyebrows, you know, eyebrows, which, of course, we know to be just a part of, you know, when when the team sat down to think about what might be needed in terms of human expression. Yeah, well, you know, eyes, eyebrows, the the way we nod our heads, like those kinds of things. And the upshot was that once the robot was there and out in research, and I was was involved in the front end, the design side, and less so the research, The mouth and the eyebrows were absent from the robot, you know, and so I went to Dr. Tamaz and I said, what gives? You know, we spent a lot of time designing that, and she explained that there were just so many variables, and if you get something that we take for granted, eyebrows, if you get that wrong, like if you have uh, something that is read as furrowed brow in an expression that should be happy or positive expression, there's so much more of a risk of miscommunication than there is a benefit of positive communication, that keeping it simpler was a much better bet overall. And what we learned from that is that if you try too hard to replicate, it's just so easy to get it wrong. And that is something that we're hardwired around, like you were saying about the tribes and figuring out what friend and, and what foe. I mean, it's something that we are socialized to learn from one another in culture. We learn how to read faces and read expressions, and that is a very, very sophisticated read in terms of all of the things that we look at like we're talking you and i are talking on the phone but i'm actually gesturing you know Uh, like even just these gestures and if we tried to design a robot to know how to manufacture these gestures the chance of getting it wrong at this stage of robotics development is so risky that it is a much better bet to do it abstractly and from a design point of view there's also an elegance being able to have an object that is abstract yet expressive, which is something that that's really a lot of what the My Robot Gatti book is about. You know, I use an example of a conference room camera that is able to spin around on a pivot and can move and face people, and there's, a, you know, a real sense of knowing which person it's listening to, how it's engaged, and also knowing that it's, if it spins its head, around, I call it its head, I mean, it's really just a cylinder on a pivot, and it spins around and then pivots downward, and the sense that it is a little head and shoulders that's tucking itself away in a corner and looking away is so clear that You know, I think it just does it really in a way that's elegant, which, you know, in all my years as a designer, whether working on smart products or not, that is really what has been successful over decades.
0: I've seen a movie, I'm trying to remember which one it was, but instead of having an actual physical robot as a companion. Uh, this movie, I thought, think it was on Netflix. Anyway, uh, it was like a companion, kind of an AI companion that was uh-huh. expressed as a hologram as opposed to a physical robot. Uh-huh. Would something like that pose as much of a quote-unquote uncanny valley risk as a robot or not?
1: Oh, that's interesting. I'm trying to think about what film it is, because when you mentioned the voice, it made me think of the film Her, but Her doesn't have the hologram. Her just is purely... Scarlett
0: Johansson as the voice. It's kind of along those lines. You know, the idea that you've got a lonely old person and there's nobody, there's no human around, but they have this AI that can help meet their needs and be a companion at home. And if it wasn't like a humanoid robot, maybe it's like an AI intelligence expressed in a hologram. Would you run into uncanny valley issues with that? if it wasn't a physical object, it was just like this mirage shimmering in front mm-hmm. of you saying, how you doing today, Francine, or whatever?
1: First of all, and so in my book also, I interviewed a number of entrepreneurs and folks who are producing things, you know, particularly for what I would call elder care. Although I really prefer, instead of talking about, I'm using the phrase, old oh, people, I've started to actually substitute that with people with cognitive disabilities. You know, what we've noticed in talking with entrepreneurs, folks like the, you know, I interviewed the head writer for Microsoft Cortana, which is uh, Microsoft's voice agent, similar to Siri or Alexa and a Google Home. And there are a few different approaches, but there is a lot of discussion and attention paid to whether or not the voice tips its hat to let people know that it's a robotic agent. And as a designer, I feel like there is value in that tipping of the hat or deliberately designing things to let people know that it's a bot before getting them far too down the line. And um, so then I'll go back to the original story I was talking about, which is a couple of years ago, Google had a demonstration of one of their agents that is called Google Duplex. And they did this demo on stage where they said, well, we're gonna have this AI that anybody can hire, basically, to pay for, and it can do things on your behalf. And so here's an example of this agent, you know, making restaurant reservations or calling the hair salon. And it was this, you know, agent then that sounded like a real voice that was on stage doing this demo of calling up real people making appointments and it was really unsettling and upsetting and people were a bit up in arms afterwards you know a lot of the reviews of the google duplex were around how upsetting and uncanny that was and so I've just found more respect, at least as a designer, for the entrepreneurs and folks who, again, are deliberately trying to tip that hat. Another product I can think of, although I'm not remembering the name of it, that was for folks with cognitive impairment, and they actually deliberately represented this agent. So it would be in a person's home and it was on a screen. And the person could talk with it. And then this thing would have a camera, would, get, would remind the person to take medication, would be able to see through the camera if that person was uneasy on his or her feet or, you know, or if there was some other condition going on. And the agent was designed to be like a low-resolution dog or cat, like very very poorly rendered, deliberately so, and, you know, I thought it was an interesting design choice not to make it seem real, and they, they wound up deploying it and used it for years, and I think the company is still in the process of developing it, It's not actually deploying it, but they just deliberately don't want it to seem completely real, but just real enough that the person develops an affection for it and has a rapport with it.
0: Okay. Yeah, that's interesting to me because, you know, I really do think that there is a place for that. But going back to your comments about the Google Duplex, I, I remember when that came out, and I remember being right. well, at least quasi-freaked out about it because I was like, well, what's to say that it's not going to call my bank and tell it to withdraw yeah. my money if somebody hacked it? What's to say yeah, that it's yeah. not going to replicate my voice because i mean there are very sophisticated programs as you know out there that can replicate anybody's voice and it just kind of goes back to that whole dimming the line between real and unreal fake and not fake and honestly i'd rather that there was a line so that people can make a choice like do i want this or not and it's interesting to me that you know about That it's not just a personal preference, that it seems like it goes deeper than just my personal preference or your personal preference, that this is a human preference, that we want to know the difference between what's real and what's not, right? Right, yeah. That was designer, author, and educator Carla Diana. And that's it for now. Stay happy and healthy, and we'll see you again next week. That was This Week in Tech with Gene Destro. Tune in next week for more tech news on 93.5-1590-WAKR and WAKR.net.